This podcast was produced on Ghana Yerda. We respect First Nation people around Australia and acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains where the Festival Centre is located. We honour their spiritual relationship with their country and we do so in the spirit of reconciliation. You know, we don't have to, as performers, we don't have to bungee jump because every time we step on the stage, we've got fear of failing and falling. Hey, it's Libby O'Donovan here. Welcome to the First 50 podcast, a 50th anniversary celebration of the Adelaide Festival Centre, the home of performing arts in South Australia. This magical venue, which I have had the delight of performing in over the last 25 years, has housed many historical moments and thousands of incredible artists. Today's guest is an absolute inspiration to me and to many artists across the country. They're a South Australian treasure who had no small part to play in the Festival Centre's history. We sat down in their favourite place to perform, the Space Theatre, and delved into their history and connection with this stage. Join us as we explore the life of multi-award-winning singer, writer and director Robin Archer. Perhaps any recounting of the Adelaide Festival Centre would be incomplete without including Robin's impact performing and advocating for the arts here. And I can think of no better way to start this series than to share Robin's story. I'll start by asking you questions about your childhood and you've had such a fascinating career. And it's been a while, hasn't it? Jesus. And reading through the extremely long list of awards, accolades, (laughs) it's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. No, it is. I mean, also the timing of this is going to be one year shy of 70 years from my first performance in Adelaide. So I was four at the British Hotel. Yes, you so were. So Dad was the front barman and the SP bookie and Mum worked in the lounge and we lived upstairs and I was four. So four years old, that was the start and, and Nana used to high kick down the stairs. She was 70 or something at the time. High kick down the stairs, plonked me on the table in the ladies' lounge and made me sing for the customers. It's crazy. I didn't even think I'd live this long, let alone be still on stage. So that was the start. Never had a chance. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are still high-kicking yourself. Yeah, 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 yes. And the ladies' lounge, so did you ever get to go into the men's area of the pub or just the ladies' lounge? I went into the men's area a lot, but after after time, sometimes I could sneak a look during, which was, it was a blood house. I mean, in those days, it was called Lower North Adelaide and it was still when the old lion, it had stopped brewing beer, but it was still brewing um, soft drinks. So I used to have old lion raspberry and cordial and lemonade and all that stuff. So we stopped that in the hotel and I'd sneak a look and it was always these incredible parade of of men, you know, in it was six o'clock closing, so it was the five o'clock swill. And because it was a very working class, let me say petty criminal class area, the characters were absolutely amazing. So there was one friend that we had, a man called Sid De Kaipo, who was a cat burglar, who gave us presents from time to time. <laughs> Little gifts. And he, he, he ended up dying in Yatla jail. So, I mean, and they were really poor people living in those 
tiny little workers' cottages long before gentrification in that area. So it was a really interesting time to be there. And it's funny, I always say to people, don't be scared of sending a four-year-old into a totally different environment because I don't remember much before four, but that year, every second, I remember everything about it. It was wonderful, wonderful for the imagination. But do you think something about that year of, you know, being four, having so much experience watching and observing people at the pub and then performing yourself from the age of four, do you think that has had a big influence on the way that you have performed throughout your career? Yeah, I think it probably has. Dad was a professional singer, stand-up comedian, compare, MC, weddings, parties, everything. And so I, I always feel like although I could never have named it like this, I think I was really apprenticing myself to my dad. I watched him gig and I watched him rehearse and I'm an only child so I was able to do all that and I was absorbing a lot of that. And then Nana, of course, great-grandmother, was a, was a bit of a performer herself. There are legendary tales about Nana. She was um, part of a costermonger family in the East End where she was born and it was said that her first gig as a little girl was they had a fish concession at Bermondsey Markets and when they would sell their fish outside London, she had to go and stand outside the latrines and spruik the toilets Piddle and pop a penny. <laughs> so, and she was quite a showwoman. So, so I guess I was, apart from the normal show-off attitude of any, any only child, I was sort of getting it through the blood, a little bit born in the trunk with both Nana and, and Dad. So, yeah, I think it did all have an effect. And I read somewhere that your mother also played piano. Is that right? Yeah, she played by ear. So like me, none of us had any training in anything. Mary could play the piano, but she also sang. She had a great voice, but not professionally. I think she was always a bit cynical about the profession. I think she would rather have dad had, dad always had a day job. So he stuck to that. And I think when I came out of university and straight into my first regular job, which was at the Trocadero nightclub in Hindley Street, mum was just a little bit disappointed. I think that was not quite what they had in mind for me, really. But mum was great. And in fact, my show, uh, An Australian Songbook, I pay a big tribute to Mary and her love of particularly country music and yodelling and all those things. Robin seemed destined to perform and her story started early in her life. But I wanted to know, when did she decide to turn her passion and talent into a profession? Just taking you back a, a little bit when you were around 13, 14, 15 and you started to really edge into more, a more of a professional realm of performing. You won, I think, the bandstand competition and you also travelled interstate to be part of a competition for the Country and Western Hour and then started performing, was it live on television, the Country and Western Hour? Yeah, well, actually earlier than that, the first competition, I mean, I'm one of those kids who today would be going in for The Voice or Australia's Got Talent. That was for the untrained, you know, the working class kid, no idea about, about training or anything like that. So I went into competition. So I went to the Channel Niners Junior Talent Quest and the prize which I won was a trip 
to Wollongong for an appearance on WIN4 Wollongong. So mum and I went off to Sydney and saw the bridge and, you know, fantastic, and then went to Wollongong. And then a couple of years later, 1964, I entered Bandstand Starflight International. The young Adelaide folk singer with the big voice, Robin Smith. It was a wonderful experience, you know, and I got to sing the kind of folk songs I was singing in those days. And then after that, I did the bandstand. So that was when I was in my fourth year at high school and I was part of the grand final. And the grand final gave you four appearances on bandstand the year later. So in my final year of high school, I trooped off cheekily arrogantly say to the teachers, oh, excuse me, I won't be, I was head prefect, you know, doing everything. Oh, I won't be here for the next few days. I'm flying to Sydney. And I was saying to somebody the other days, boy, was that a different era? No duty of care of any kind. I was 15, then 16. Get on the plane, taxi's there to pick you up to take you to the Chevron Hilton. You're staying by yourself. Taxi comes the next day, takes you to the Channel 9, you do your thing, you come home, you're in the Chevron Hilton, you're by yourself. And I got up to a few antics, I have to say, in King's Cross and Chevron Hilton. It wouldn't happen now. You'd no. have minders everywhere. Oh, and you exciting. 15. 15 and then 16, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely amazing <laughs> to think. And I desperately want to know what you got up to. But No, uh, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> They'll have to wait for the memoir, sorry. <laughs> I can't wait for that. That's going to be amazing. And, like, what was it about your voice and, and the way you performed that really captured those competition adjudicators to say, she's got something, let's have her on our show? Because from there you get the bug for it and you love it and you love the attention and you love what it gives you, but there's something extra about the way you perform that captures other people as well. Whether my enthusiasm was redoubled as a curse on my rotten breathing. No doctor will confirm it. In fact, they think it's fanciful. But I thought maybe after I started to emerge at puberty from really bad asthma, that I started producing my own adrenaline. And so I always got myself into positions of fear, which is always the case of performing. That might have also been because I was such a bad asthmatic, I wasn't good at sport. And it's a bit of a double whammy at primary and high school, particularly primary school. If you're really getting top marks in the class and you're no good at sport, both of those things make you very unpopular. And so maybe, you know, it was when I dragged my ukulele out in grade seven and played jailhouse rock in the yard, I could pull a crowd and suddenly I got popular and I thought, okay, here's, here's the way in, here's the way I'll do it. Something of that, something from the training I learned from dad, my voice is pitched almost exactly where my dad's voice is. So all along I knew I would never be anybody's idea of a lead, a female lead in a musical because I'm just not pitched there. So I think there's something about maybe in a 15 or 16-year-old hearing quite a mature, deep voice was perhaps attractive to people who were listening. Don't know. There's something about if we notice something different 
or brilliant or new or all three at once is the best. And and obviously that sounds like that's what you had. Definitely something different, something they hadn't heard before, which is new. And then brilliant because you had honed this craft at school and before school. Yeah, I, I think also, I mean, I cannot be over-altruistic and claim that somehow I was doing the songs of political America, the folk songs, for some political reason. It was because folk music was top of the hit parade and I wanted to be famous. You know, I wanted to be top of the hit parade. And so it was singing the songs that politicised me. I didn't go into it with a political motive. I went in like any teenager, you know, singer. I wanted to sort of be famous. So maybe there was also the added dimension of somebody young with a bit of a deeper voice who was also singing what appeared to be highly politicised <laughs> repertoire, which she was only doing because she wanted to be famous. <laughs> that attracted them. It would be like seeing if Greta Thunberg was a singer. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You'd go, oh, my goodness, what is, what is that person doing? Yeah, it's great. Well, and they filled in the blanks for you. Yeah, yeah exactly. She exactly. is this person. You shifted from that that love of folk music and wanting to be, you know, matching the songs you're hearing on the hit parade into more of a cabaret style. When did that happen? There were a few steps in between. I was in a band for a while called Robin Smith and the Heavy Piece which we were doing Led Zeppelin on. That was a crazy sort of punky kind of band. There is ridiculous footage that's still available, which I think if you Google something like Blues at Lunchtime, Alex Innocenti had this footage, and it's me and the heavy piece, me desperately trying to look like Janis Joplin, performing in the open shop in Rundle Mall of Godfrey's, like we're standing amongst the fridges and the washing machines, with, you know, doing this blues of some kind with people looking on going, what on earth? This is ridiculous. So there was Robin Archer and the Heavy Peace. I had my first band, was called the Jug Scrubbing Mummers. We were a jug band, a four-piece female jug band. So there was a bit of that. I met Peter Beagley, now Peter Head, uh, father of Lo Carmen. And he introduced me to jazz and jazz singers. So I was singing with trios, etc. But that really happened because of the Festival Centre. That's That was, like most things in my career, it was uh, entirely accidental. It was somebody coming to me. And it was because I came to this theatre in the space to do the opening production of The Seven Deadly Sins. I was directed by Wald Sherry. It was a huge success. And I mean, it was also the function of Anthony Steele being willing to have this small new opera, South Australia, this little group that had started as a salon of people in Adelaide who weren't hearing Kurt Weil or Janacek, they, and they just did it as a salon at home, became a company, and that was the origins of State Opera South Australia. But Anthony's willingness to have something new and daring and the Australian premiere of The Seven Deadly Sins. But the year afterwards, Wall bought John Willett out to be the dramaturg. And when I met John, Wall and John both persuaded me that this was the repertoire for me. And eventually, after a few heated discussions, they persuaded me to go in that direction. And that's really what then introduced me to the whole stuff about Berlin Cabaret and then through John, French Cabaret, etc., etc. Robin acknowledges the strong influences in her life, 
and she in turn has become a strong influence for people like me and many other singers across Australia. I became intrigued as to the transition she has made professionally from being a local pub and club venue singer to now being an internationally renowned cabaret and theatre performer. What is it about a theatre or a room, or you, you talk about the Space Theatre and the Dunstan Playhouse here at the Adelaide Festival Centre that you love, what is it that's so special to you and that connects with you when you're in that space performing the music that you love? It's very, very interesting because cabaret has come to mean so many different things and is now a, a melange of comedy, burlesque, vaudeville, lounge. I mean, everything you want to mention is what people call cabaret. So every now and then somebody will ask me to do a show, one of my shows, and will want to put it in a place where they're serving drinks and food or perhaps do it outside. That was recently somebody asked me and I said, I, I, I keep saying this show needs theatrical attention but also people have to see your mouth properly. So in a smaller venue like the Space or the Playhouse, you can see everything that a performer does. It's very intense focus. It's, I, I often compare it to tennis players playing singles. You know, you're out in the middle of the court for hours on end and so many people are watching you and they can see everything you do. For a singer, that's very, very important for me to be able to be understood. And it's been quite a long time since I've done a show that doesn't really require Require that kind of intensity, you know, and I feel very confident in in the theatrical space to be able to do that. Mm. So, a long time since I've done a bar or a a gig kind of environment. Not that I don't like them; it's just that the material demands that attention. It became clear that Robin's mastery of performing allowed her to set her sights on curation and her creativity could scale up as more tools became available to her to put together an amazing lineup. There's a wonderful collection of newspaper clippings, brochures, things that you've been involved in right. at the Festival Centre here that I'd love to show you. And oh, great. See if anything stands out to you that you want to talk about. Oh, would, because... it be, would it be the late Christopher Pearson saying that the festival will be ruined because of Robin Archer? Oh, <laughs> tell me about that. <laughs> well, that's just what he said. He, he eventually said I hadn't done a bad job, but, <laughs> but he initially said that the festival would be ruined if I came in as the artistic director. <laughs> Wow, okay. <laughs> I mean, these are mainly from the Adelaide Festival Centre. I mean, you've had such a, a long legacy here, really, and I think many of the Adelaide and people who visit Adelaide to come to the Adelaide Festival Centre to see shows have your name as part of their experience <laughs> and something that you've been involved in, whether it be the Adelaide Arts Festival or seeing you perform at the Cabaret Festival or another theatre production you're synonymous with this and I think because uh, we are proud South Australians when we are South Australians, we like to shout loud and clear that you're one of us. Yeah, well, it was it was really a, a great honour. I mean, I bypass it but, of course, being the first woman to direct one of the major arts festivals is an important moment because at that time it was boys, boys, boys then there was me and now it's more women 
more women artistic directors of the major festivals than men. So a lot has changed in that period. It was an important step. I'm rather conscious of a, a public image about myself developing and I thought that it would be a very good idea if I started writing a few songs to coincide with the image. And uh, I was trying to sort of really work out the fine di details of this image and I thought, now when people pick up my records, they look at the cover of The Lady's Choice and they see such titles as Dicks Don't Grow on Trees, The Old Soft Screw, the menstruation blues. And they say to themselves, this is a cerebral writer. And uh, <clears throat> so I thought I'd better start doing something about that. And I wrote a song with a very cerebral title of interest. And on that, you directed the Adelaide Arts Festival in 1998 and in 2000. What was your vision? What did you come into and what were you hoping? And then what happened? First of all, I'd been away. I'd lived in London for 10 years. I'd been away from Adelaide for a lot of that time. I was sort of moving between Sydney and London for a lot of that time. And I guess it was the best. It was like homecoming queen. It was like coming home just as my parents were getting older. I wanted to spend a bit more time with them and coming back to the best job in the, the best arts job you could in the state. Absolutely extraordinary. I was in a very, very lucky position coming in. I mean, number one, it was when the festival happened every two years and that was such a luxury, not like the grind it is now for festivals having to come up with a new program every year. I understand all the reasons why you do it because of staff and sponsors and all that. But to be able to do a festival, learn from your mistakes and correct them in the next one was really fantastic luxury. Barry Kosky had come in to do the 96 festival and Barry had really turned the festival on its head. He'd welcomed a younger audience in. It was very timely for that. At the same time, because he'd brought in a younger audience, there was a bit of a shift away for the older, more traditional audience. So I was offered the opportunity to maintain the younger audience and bring back some of the older audience. So that was, that was I guess, that was what I really wanted. There'd also been a bit of a debt incurred and uh, the uh, the minister of the day declared that the debt would have to be repaid back in my first festival, at which time I said, could it be over two rather or maybe over ten? It's not my fault exactly. However, the 98 festival was a grand success and we did pay back the budget in full in one festival. So that was really great. Mainly what happened was that I walked in for my first meeting and the then general manager, Ian Scobie, handed me a handful of brochures of international festivals and said, you've got to start somewhere. And so began many, many years with this festival and then Melbourne and Tasmania, Liverpool, etc., of exploring the world of the arts in a way that I had never been, even though I'd lived 10 years in London and seen a lot of stuff, I still couldn't say that I'd seen enough dance or enough European or American theatre to be an expert in it. But suddenly I was travelling all the time. I was sometimes seeing four or five shows a day. So it immensely expanded my own horizons and shifted my taste in theatre and dance and music enormously. It was the greatest privilege one can imagine. Do you have a favourite festival memory from when you were the artistic director of the Adelaide Arts Festival? Oh, there are so many great memories of things that happened during the festivals. I mean, I do go back to the 
the opening events, which were always spectacular, and the particular one in 1998, long before light parades or anything like that were very fashionable everywhere, I wanted to open with something spectacular instead of using the normal big Latin opera, whatever happened, I chose a brand new one called Flammar Flammar by a Belgian composer and I got Nigel Jamison to direct it and we asked each community to make a paper construction that represented their community and we lit it from inside and they directed, I think it was 600 students to carry open flames along the torrents at the same time. We paraded this stuff all through Elder Park. Now, it's sort of commonplace now. You've got the Lantern Festival with the Asia Festival, but in 1998, it really hadn't been done before. And at the end of it, I think, certainly we intended to do it. Again, I don't think you could do it now, but there was a huge reclining Buddha and everything kind of went down and we set fire to it and sent it down the torrents. So it was a spectacular opening. That one was really good. Inviting Mary Schneider to yodel the classics in Symphony Under the Stars, which completely outraged the classical music audience. How dare you, you know, as as Mary, you know, yodeled the William Tell and got the audience to yodel at the same time. And then for the 2000 festival, I had an overwhelming series. Again, Before it was done, really, the fact that Ron Radford at the gallery agreed to the first Indigenous biennial, which Brenda Croft directed, and we had so many First Nations people here for that festival, and the opening evening had various bands, Paul Kelly, singing with them, and because it was 2000 and so early in the century, we had people bring their newborn babies who were born in the year since the 1st of January. They were all swaddled and an artist had created swaddling cloths. And I think we had 20 or 30 newborns parade down in amongst the audience onto the stage of Indigenous performers with Paul Kelly. That was pretty special. That parents would feel the safety. So these were, you know, between the oldest was three months old or less, two and a half months old, that parents felt a safety in amongst thousands of public that they didn't know and Indigenous rock bands, etc., to be able to bring their infants along and parade them in this crowd. That was amazing. That was good. And maybe in um, uh, 1998, every day a wedding. That was very, very special. My whole festival in 98 was predicated on, because I I didn't invent it, I found lots of artists who were thinking about what they believed in as the the millennium approached. And so I thought, okay, there's, let's do it about articles of faith, which is exactly what Flamar Flamar was about, about, you know, a sign of your faith. What do you believe? And so for the gay community, it was a, a big rainbow. For the Buddhists, it was a big Buddha, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, what actually unites us? I thought, what are, what are the things, no matter what religion or faith or whatever, what are the things that we actually have together? And I thought, well, birthday parties, funerals, it could be a bit gloomy, weddings. Every culture has a wedding. So every night of the festival, 17 nights in the rotunda, people got married. More than half were real weddings and some were just demonstration weddings. So we had three or four 
gay, lesbian couples, they couldn't actually get married at that time, but they pledged their vows. I think it might have opened with a Spanish wedding, which had horses and flamenco in the rotunda. And what made me laugh was there were reviewers, like the next day a review would come out about what a great speech the the bridegroom made or how nice the costumes were. There was a hippie wedding. They turned up in a purple combi van. There was a Scottish wedding with bagpipes, etc., etc. So that was that was surprising. And you'd usually get four, six hundred people watching these people get married. And the best of all was the la- very last one. Susanna was in our team, and Chris Drummond married Susanna in the rotunda. Nine months to the day they had their first child. Now that's what I call a festival success. That it was a beauty. <laughs> Absolutely. Pushing boundaries, motivated by fame or by advocacy. Robin's lifetime in the arts has a legacy of being innovative and timeless. I felt that I needed to know how she maintained her imaginative spirit all this time. You have this incredible, extraordinary amount of creativity always buzzing around you, new shows, new ideas thinking about new concepts and and ways to invigorate us within the arts and as part of this whole culture of the arts. What do you do to keep yourself always just thinking of new things? Gee, I don't don't know. Is it a roundabout way of expressing? I've met two people who were in prison camps in the Second World War. Margrethe Schutterhotsky, who was Vienna's first female architect, about whom I wrote a show, Architecten, which premiered in the Dunstan Playhouse, and Jonathan Mills' father, Frank Mills, who was imprisoned in Sandakan. Margrethe Schutterhotsky was in Dachau during the World War. Both people, Frank, uh, Jonathan's father, was still body surfing into his 90s. Margrethe Schutterlachotsky was still, although nearing blindness, was still doing drawings of architecture. Uh, She died at 102. I find that many people who are deprived of certain freedoms and health make the most of what is left to them. And I just wonder if the severity of my asthma, as a child, I was, you know, very often in bed during winter and missing school and stuff. I just wonder if that is an extra thing that when you're well, you absolutely make the most of it. And, you know, I just wonder whether the recent pandemic, the continuing pandemic, is going to have the same effect on people, that, that many more people have become ill than would normally become ill and whether they are valuing good breath, good breathing, being able just to walk, to not be locked down, to enjoy things. I just wonder if that's going to promote a new lease for life in many, many people. And it might be in that case that just because I was restricted, I kind of fought against that and had a lot of time alone by myself meaning that the imagination was stimulated. I think imagination is one of the most important attributes for anyone. Anything that we can do 
in our education system to stimulate the imagination. And of course, it's what we do in the arts. What we do is we present works which shouldn't be designed just for passive taking in, like just, you know, binging on Netflix or whatever you do. What you get in the arts and particularly in live performance, particularly in a place like this, is stimulating people's curiosity, stimulating their imagination. And that's, you know, really one of the most important things. So I just wonder whether that was one of the reasons that it did it for me, that I was deprived early of complete health and being able to do what other kids do. And something happened in the inner imagination that just kept breeding more and more and more. And never quite grew up and stopped. (laughs) And you never take any performance for granted. I mean, before we started having a chat for this podcast, you said that you've got a show coming up and you're really looking forward to it because you never know when your last show might be, so you might as well just do it the best you can with such vigour. Yeah, well, nobody knows, do they? I mean, you can get hit by a bus, but, you know, cancellations are still in our profession anywhere. So you've really got to understand what it is. And I mean, I'm very, very glad to say that in the 50th year of celebration, there is a slight hint that I may indeed almost 50 years to the day return to one of the stages here during this 50th year. I will be very, very happy about that if that can happen. That is so exciting and I will be there with bells on, that's for sure. Okay. So the first 50 years of the Adelaide Festival Centre are done now. What would you hope for the next 50 years? What would you like to see and how important does an establishment like this, you know, how important is it in as part of the Adelaide culture, as part of the culture of theatre? What do you see? Even though it was a Liberal government who had made the first steps to making this theatre, it was Don Dunstan eventually who made it happen. There was a lot of hue and cry saying, oh my God, if you build this, it'll it'll be a white elephant, it'll always be empty. And almost from the moment it opened, it not only had terrific professional performances, but it had corporations annual Christmas shows, you know, Holden's or something like that when we had a car industry. You know, it it was adopted by the people. It really became a people's palace in many ways. So I suppose that I will hope that in the future it remains that. It has the very highest of professional work anywhere. I hope that the the arts festival continues to bring the most challenging, beautiful work from overseas for those people who don't have the kind of privileges that we do of possibly seeing it. Although even more important now that that the COVID situation has made travel more difficult and more complex and more variable. People are travelling less. We will see less of those important pieces and so it's vital that they come here and that the festivals and the, and the festival itself does that. And I think things like the Asia Festival now and at Chinois did a great program this year, I think that happens, the Cabaret Festival bringing the best of that stuff. But at the same time that it is still a place where not necessarily culture vultures are always very happy to come, I think, number one, that's important. And what would you say to someone who's never been to the Festival Centre before and they're not sure whether they should come along, what is it about this place that invites everyone to it? I think there are 
a few challenges. Some people just feel intimidated and like galleries or like stepping into a university precinct. It's too smart for me. I don't know what it is. All I would say is give it a crack. I remember walking up King William Road, probably got the bus in, and walking along King William Road and seeing what I later found out to be a New York cellist being lifted on a crane above the festival centre, eventually seeing her hold an ice cello between her legs and play it till it melted on North Terrace. And as a kid from the Burbs with no arts training whatsoever, coming from a popular medium, I went, what on earth is that? That was Anthony still giving me the shock of the new. It was very, very important stimulation. I would say that's important. Just give it a crack. You never know. I can't say to people who don't love the arts, your life is not as rich as mine because everybody has their riches. All I can say is the arts have enriched my life beyond my every expectation and just give it a crack. to ask you about your experiences with the Adelaide Festival Centre. Have you ever seen a show or been into the Adelaide Festival Centre? Many, many times. What do you love about going to see live theatre? Well, it's you get a lot of surprises and, you know, they're real actors on stage performing and it takes a lot toll on them as well and it's really nice to see as well. The pure brilliance of the acting, how people remember their lives, you know, it's just fantastic. Yeah, just that experience of seeing the actors up on stage, being there with them, you know, there's nothing like it really. Thank you, Robin Archer, incredible performer, artistic director, singer, creator. Ah, shucks, I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) blush. And really, we are so fortunate to have you as part of our Australian artistic landscape. So thank you so much. Thanks, Libby. It's been fun to do this. Robin Archer is one of many artists who have made history here. And as we celebrate the Adelaide Festival Centre turning 50, we're looking forward to talking to more performers who have made incredible moments happen on these stages. You won't want to miss our future episodes, so make sure to get subscribed so you can be notified when they come out. If you enjoyed this audio experience, rate the podcast and share it with your friends and family so we can all enjoy the rich cultural experiences South Australia has to offer. In the meantime, if you need an entertainment fix, why not see a show? You can find out what fantastic performances are currently showing on the Adelaide Festival Centre website and social media. Search Adelaide Festival Centre or follow the links in the episode description. I'm Libby O'Donovan and you're listening to The First 50 Podcast, produced by Solstice Podcasting.